Hello, I'm Trevor Dan, and this is Cam's Politics, where we usually discuss, well, Cambridgeshire politics. But that is a bit difficult this month because of the forthcoming local elections. So instead, we're going to get a local perspective on the biggest current issue in world events, the conflict in Ukraine. Joining me to discuss what the people of Russia are thinking is Professor Katrina Kelly. She's an expert on Soviet and Russian culture from the University of Cambridge. And she was actually in St. Petersburg until a few hours before the invasion was launched. So she has some very topical views. Also from Anglia Ruskin University, Dr Sean Lang's here to give us some historical background to the conflict. And of course there's music too. I wonder if you saw the video of Ukrainian people standing in front of a Russian tank and singing this. wonderful Tom Petty on Cambridge 105 Radio, where we're talking this hour about Ukraine with historian Sean Lang from AIU. Cambridge 105 Radio. So, Dr Sean Lang, we call this area the Ukraine, or at least we did for a long time, and now we call it Ukraine. It's an odd country, isn't it, because it's been ruled over by so many different other people, not just the people of Ukraine. Is that really what is the background to this conflict, that lots of other people feel they own it? Yes, it is, really. I suppose a lot of people in this country tend to think that, as you say, the Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union. And so you tend to think, well, Ukrainian, Russian sounds about the same. And also the language sounds, I suppose, to our ears fairly similar. And certainly when you visit Ukraine, if you know you know, Russia and the old Soviet Union, you'll see exactly the same sort of styles of architecture, the same sort of feel, if you like, on, on the streets. But actually to say Ukraine basically part of Russia is a bit like saying Ireland basically part of the United Kingdom, Irish, English, they're pretty much the same, aren't they? It is like that, that's the equivalent. Because historically, Ukraine was essentially linked with areas to the west and north, in other words, to Poland, and even actually as far as Lithuania up in the Baltic. And there's a, there's a long, rather complicated history of the what was called the Poland-Lithuania Commonwealth, and Ukraine was part of it. And there were tensions and, and what have you. But Russia's sort of incursion into Ukraine is historically relatively recent. We're talking, I mean, it won't sound recent to our ears, because if I say 18th and 19th century, that sounds like ancient history. And certainly the myth, if you like, that Ukraine is really the heart of Russia, which is exactly what Vladimir Putin has been saying, is actually something which was concocted in Russia really in the 19th century. So Ukraine, and, and, and a quick word about the name, Ukraine is a word which means borderland. And again, a little bit like, say, the Scottish borders, you know, we always put the in front, and this is why people for many, many years didn't need to talk about the Ukraine. But actually, it is a people, it is a language that has a, a long sort of nationalist history of its own. And the borderland, which gave it its name, wasn't a Russian borderland. It was more of the sort of southern end of that Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth that I was talking about. So I think it's fair to say that, you know, when we tend to, you know, be a little bit bewildered by that. I mean, that's fair enough. No one's expecting everyone to be an expert in the history of Eastern Europe. But in terms of national feeling, this isn't some sort of invention of the late 20th century by people who are Russian, really. Very far from it. In fact, so far from it, because the people of Ukraine 
suffered horrifically, partly as people will understand at the hands of the Nazis during the Second World War and alongside the Poles, and of course they are close to the Poles, I think you'd have to say that they suffered probably worse than any other people of, of Europe. But also, and this is very importantly, of course, from the Russians. I mean, to give you a couple of examples, and they're not small examples, if you just take the six million figure that, uh, that people are very familiar with from the Holocaust, the Jewish Holocaust, we think something close to four million died of deliberate starvation, the policy of starvation at the beginning of the 1930s on the orders of Stalin. This is in a period of about two years and deliberate starvation. This sort of thing does not get forgotten. Moreover, there's another deliberate policy of famine after the Second World War, also on the orders of Stalin. And Stalin is very much a figure whom Vladimir Putin very much reveres. So you begin to see why his speech and his idea that Ukraine is part of Russia really isn't just historically wrong. In a sense, that doesn't matter. It is deeply insulting to people's sense of national identity and who they are and what their history is. And of course, this is an ancient history. This is, you know, grandparents' time, maybe great-grandparents, but certainly well within family sort of retelling period. Sean, that's a very useful sketch. Thank you very much for that. The other thing that I wanted to talk to you about was the effect that such an issue has on British politics. You know, we're doing a show called Cam's Politics and it, it's hard not to touch on the international and national perspectives here. But just looking back over the previous few years, a generation or two, you've had Hungary and Suez under Eden, the Falklands under Thatcher, the Balkans under Major, Iraq under Blair. These conflicts do bleed down into uh, local and national politics, don't they? What sort of effect do you think they have? Well, I think a very important lesson to draw, which politicians don't always learn, and after all, it's their trade, not mine, is that domestic politics, in the end, always matter more than foreign affairs to most people. Only very rarely does an issue of foreign policy sort of trump issues about, you know, like the, the cost of living, tax rises, price rises and so on. Um, in fact, I have a little thing which I always tell my students and I can now tell to Cambridgeshire, uh, which is small things matter more than big. And to the overwhelming majority of people, what seems small is actually very important because it's to do with the daily life. Now, what I'm getting at here is that just occasionally you have a major impact on domestic politics. I'm thinking, for example, of the, uh, the war in Iraq, which, although, of course, it didn't actually lose uh, Tony Blair elections, but of course it did lose him at the support of his party. And there's talk of the Falklands factor for Mrs Thatcher. But in both of those, of course, you've got British troops involved. Similarly with the Suez crisis. Again, it, Britain was absolutely centre center stage in that one. But when it comes to sort of wanting to get a sort of Churchill sheen onto you from some foreign policy crisis, which obviously Boris Johnson is hoping for, and Mrs Thatcher indeed sort of invokes the spirit of Churchill in the Falklands War. It doesn't, well, even if it does work like that, you have to remember that Churchill then lost the 1945 election while the war was still going on at the moment of victory. Because in the end, we're talking today when we've got the huge rise in household bills, in, in energy bills and uh, council tax and so on and so forth. This is the issue which is, in the end, is going to hit people very, very hard. And it's noticeable it, it's put the war in Ukraine off the top headlines. And that's because for most people, I won't say it's more important, but it's more immediate. And in that sense, it's more important. It would be interesting, wouldn't it, to walk the streets 
of Cambridge and say to people, which of these three is the most important? Is it the cost of living? Is it Partygate or is it the Ukrainian conflict? And it would depend on your definition of important, wouldn't it? But if you're saying which is more important to you, which of course is how most people would interpret it, they would have to say cost of living. And Partygate, the sort of received, not, not received wisdom exactly, but certainly the message that you heard from Jason Rees-Mogg, for example, and certainly you can well imagine it would be hoped in Downing Street, is that surely a war is more important than parties. But remember, small things matter more than big. Because Partygate isn't really about parties. Partygate was about the virus. Partygate was about people dying and observing the rules. And it's about sort of hypocrisy in government. And that doesn't go away. So I've noticed, actually, that in a sense, the, the news agenda on the Metropolitan Police issuing fines did bring it back up. But of course, we haven't got names to attach to it. But actually, in a way, I think that the Sue Gray report, which will come when the police involvement is over, that will be a big bomb again, you know, because that's still got the political clout, because it's about the culture. And any hope I think that Boris Johnson had of really rising above all of that through the Ukraine crisis, I think was thrown away in his speech to the Conservative Party when he sort of made a link with Brexit, which even he then had to resolve on, because it was a reminder, if you like, uh, that, hang on a minute, yeah, this is the style, if you like, of the, of the Prime Minister. So, so to those who don't like him, it was a, a sort of reminder. And even, of course, to his supporters, that was a thought of, hang on, that was a big misstep. So, yeah, I, I think you're, you're quite right that people would say cost of living, Ukraine Partygate. But if you sort of say, hang on, Partygate is about this sort of government we've got and the rules by which it operates, then I think it creeps back up again. It's interesting, isn't it, how the British system requires you to be a politician, an MP first, which means, you know, grubbing around the streets, banging on people's doors. And then in a flash, it requires you to be a statesman those are slightly different roles, aren't they? And Margaret Thatcher, lover or loather, did turn out to be a statesperson. Yeah. Perhaps Blair did for a yeah. while, others less so. Because what they enjoy you... it, because you get all the, the kudos, they don't do... you? And you get uh, the headlines uh, and the, uh, the, uh, you know, the executive jets and, all, and motorcades. Absolutely, the they do. And that's why the job of foreign secretaries often rather look down on, because when there's anything important, actually the prime minister flies in <laughs> yeah. and does your job for you. But I was just wondering how you would consider the role of Britain now as a world power represented as it is by Johnson and Truss and others, are we influential on the world stage or are we just kind of pretending that we were like we used to be? That's absolutely the right word, influential, because we're not a world power in anything like the way we used to be. Because world power means that you've got economic clout and you've got military clout, neither of which we have to the extent that used to be the case. But influence can be exerted in different ways. And much of it depends, firstly, on things like trading links. And this is why the Brexit experiment, and it is an experiment, is still very much in progress. We don't know quite what economic clout it's going to give us. The argument was always that we didn't have it because we were sort of submerged in the European Union. But in terms of influence, partly it depends on personality. You know, when you have got presidents and prime ministers hobnobbing, they have personal relations, as it were, in the same way that any of us do when we get together. 
a lot of it comes from how your country is perceived. And for many years, indeed, I think it's fair to say that this country did sort of box above its weight because it was very well perceived. We had a reputation, for example, for a very high quality education system and a sort of high quality civil service and diplomatic corps. And indeed, the Queen's very specifically in Commonwealth and not just Commonwealth circles. Again, that sort of mixture of respect and skill and, and what have you, again, clearly very appreciated, very much recognised. And that's why the tone of government and the sort of moral authority with which you speak matters on the international stage as well as at home. So do we still matter? Are we still a world power? It depends on how our value and integrity are regarded, because if you have those, then people will either listen to you or know that they ought to. Dr. Sean Lang from AIU, thank you so much for joining us on Cameras Politics. We're going to carry on talking about Ukraine and meet Professor Katrina Kelly after this. It's a human when things go wrong, when the sand of her lingers and temptation strong. That's Elton John on Cambridge 105 Radio. Uh, This is episode three of Cam's Politics, which we're devoting to a chat about Ukraine. And our next guest is Katrina Kelly. She's Honorary Professor of Russian and Soviet Culture and Senior Research Fellow to boot at Trinity College, Cambridge. And I'm sorry to say that she's speaking to us from Oxford. How dare you? I know, and I actually just moved to Cambridge from Oxford as well, so there you go. It's a disgrace. Anyway, it's lovely to have you on. You were in St Petersburg, weren't you, a few days before this invasion happened. What was that like, and did you expect it? Well, I did by that stage, I must say. I mean, the thing that made me expect it was the movement of refugees from the Donbass. So there's a rather high-profile movement of a large group of refugees into Russia from Donbass. And I thought, this doesn't look good. This looks like a move from the pre-invasion playbook. And so even before the Donetsk and Luhansk republics were recognised by Russia on on Monday the 21st, I, I was pretty sure that they were going to go in. And I flew back on the 22nd, so it was actually round about a day, I mean, you know, counted as 24 hours. I arrived round about a day before the the invasion started, because, of course, it was very early in the morning. And I was sure they wouldn't invade on the 23rd of February, because that's a big public holiday. And actually, that's the day for, used to be Soviet Army Day, but it's now called Defenders of the Motherland Day. And obviously, the troops would like a day off on that particular day. So people were much more careful about checking your passport than would usually happen and they had a sort of quite high level um, member of the border police actually at the gate just in case I mean I gather that since then leaving Russia has got much more complicated than that and they actually spend a long time going through your passport and if you've got any Ukrainian stamps in it then they ask you exactly what you were doing there and obviously if you're leaving Ukraine or you've got Ukrainian relatives that visited there a lot it makes life very complicated. So you've been going to St Petersburg and and, and throughout Russia and Ukraine for years you must know a lot of people how would you sum up the general mood I mean we're always told aren't we in England that there's some opposition to Putin but probably not much because they don't get told the truth because of what's on their media 
Do you find, I know you would probably meet a lot of members of, of what's still called the intelligentsia over there. Um, do you find that they have very much sympathy with Putin? It does vary by social group, and it's absolutely right to say that large numbers of people in the intelligentsia really don't admire Putin at all. And where they have taken state funding, they've taken it with a close peg on the nose. And um, there's been a sort of strong sense that their ideas and ideals are different, but they're somehow compatible. I mean, it's not been sort of disgraceful to take state money and... There's been increasing pressure on people to conform if they do take state funding. But Andres Vyagensev, to name a, a really well-known figure in the West as well, the filmmaker, his film Leviathan, which actually was very controversial when it was released and it wasn't put on general release in Russia, so people watched it on streaming services. But that was actually funded with a grant from the Ministry of Culture. So there was a time when it looked rather like the Brezhnev era in the sense that Things were permitted for small audiences. The state would fund certain things and they wouldn't turn out. They would be a case of an official taking a risk on this project. And then when it came out, it didn't actually sort of satisfy the demands of the time. And so then it would be shelved or it would be shown, as I say, to small audiences. And I think now what's happened is the situation's actually become far more constrictive than that. So now it's sort of more like, I think, the sort of early Bolshevik era, so sort of end of the 1920s, when it changed from the sort of famous saying, anybody not against us is with us, and became those who aren't with us are against us. So that's what has happened now. So you're required to sort of sign up in a much more active way to support of the war. So when you hear journalists and so-called experts over here saying there could be a coup against Putin. You know, there's a lot of people around outside of his circle who would willingly do away with him. Do you give any credence to that kind of talk? Not really. I mean, in order to do away with him, in order to get anywhere near Putin these days, you have to be part of his, his trusted inner circle. And those people all have got huge investments in allowing the status quo to remain as it is, because if he goes down, then so do their profitable deals on various types of state revenue, um, you know, territories in ministries, enormous kind of privileges, not just for them, but also for various family members. So there's what used to be known in the Stalin era as a tail. So, you know, somebody kind of has a long dragon's tail of those who are sort of in their patronage orbit to mix metaphors alongside them. So I, I can't see it happening like that unless somebody's playing a double game. I imagine what is actually happening is people sort of behind the scenes maybe squaring up in the way they did before Stalin died and, you know, working out who's going to sort of, you know, be top dog afterwards. The only thing that I would say is it's complicated taking long bets on Russian history because it's known to spring surprises. And I don't think any of the coups that have happened have really been possible to predict in advance. So... I wouldn't be astonished if it happened, but I'd sort of be rationally surprised, if you know what I mean. I can't sort of see a real way of making a case of how it would happen. On the other hand, obviously, things fell apart in 1917 very quickly. And I was remembering today, actually, that a friend of mine, she's she's American and her family is, is actually Jewish, but they were sort of landowners for a long time and very much privileged background. And her grandmother went to St. Petersburg in January 1917. And... Barbara found her grandmother's diary and there was just one sentence and it said, 
the people love that saw. So that was January 1917. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> at the time, my friends would have said, you know, how, how could anybody write anything so boring? But of course, now one does wonder. I mean, you know, writing that would be the sort of obvious tourist response, if, assuming there were any tourists. Um, so talking about this conflict then, we've heard Vladimir Putin say in terms, there is no such thing as Ukraine. Uh, we've heard it described as Little Russia. We know it's been fought over by many different powers over the years. Do people who are broadly Russian think that people who are Ukrainian are the same? You know, do they think they're the same people slightly in the way we might think that we're the same people as the Welsh, even though we know there are different countries involved, but we kind of think we're all British? Do they think they're all... Slavic or all, you know, connected in some way? Or do they really think that they're racially distinct? Again, it sort of varies on whom you're asking. And also that question has become actually quite embittered, particularly since 2014. And what I would say is that Russian and Ukrainian is a bit more like the English and the Irish because, you know, the Welsh, you might say, are a bit more like the Belarusians because they don't invite the same sort of stereotypes of perfidy, yes, you know, kind of stab in the back, kind of revolutionary behaviour. And of course, I mean, you know, they are the same religion with some qualifications, because of course, some Ukrainians belong to the Unit Church, which is in communion with the Catholic Church. But the big difference is language. So Ukrainian is actually a separate language. So it's not just a question of, of, of speaking a dialect, although arguably Ukrainian to some speakers of Russian might be kind of nearly as comprehensible as a very thick dialect from the northeast to somebody from the south of England. But nevertheless, it has its extensively developed separate literature, it's recognised as a separate language. And on the other hand, to Russians, it sounds kind of a bit quaint, a bit sort of like mamaset. I'm not saying that because I'm intending to be insulting to Ukrainians. I just mean that there's a sort of country cousins attitude towards Ukraine, which is actually extremely misleading because Ukraine is a very sophisticated culture. It had a kind of very advanced Baroque movement at the sort of stage when Russians painters were doing really very provincial paintings. It was the sort of centre of learning in the 17th century. I mean, people talk about obviously the early Russian period um, when Kiev is the sort of centre of the Russian world, but actually in the 17th century as well, the Ukraine is a centre of learning. So I think it's a sort of complicated picture. And of course, recently in the mix has been the fact that Ukraine and Russia went radically different ways after the fall of the Soviet Union. So Ukraine has gone the way of democratically elected governments and therefore kind of concomitant instability to some extent. I mean, in other words, you don't know who's necessarily going to be president in five years' time. There can be surprises. The election of Zelensky was a surprise. It's also been a surprise to see how effectively Zelensky's dealt with the war situation. It's kind of unsettling. I mean, I think we have to think of Scotland after independence, maybe, to think of the situation we'd be in. And obviously, a lot of people south of the border do think the Scottish nationalists are sort of, you know, nationalists in a fully-fledged sense. They do associate nationalism with the right, which, you know, the Scottish National Party is an illustration that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. And actually, one of the more successful methods of stigmatisation of Ukrainians has been to, to say that they're Nazis, because that sort of unites in one package being nationalist and being a fascist. Um, it's a very curious use of the word Nazi, isn't it? Yes. I mean, you can see why people in the Soviet Union would have an idea of what a Nazi was, because he was probably standing outside their door with a gun. But the 
right-wing people who now run Russia might themselves be described as Nazis. I mean, I'm, I'm not doing it, but you could see why they could be characterised as a very right-wing party that's in power. Why is it so powerful for them to keep using this word denazification about Ukraine? Well, it comes down to Second World War history, I think, because, I mean, you say about, you know, when people witnessed Second World War history and they could actually see a German soldier outside the door. And of course, Germans and Nazis were then the same thing. And I mean, it is regular usage to describe the invaders as fascisti, so the fascists. I mean, actually, Nazi is far less commonly used about the Second World War. But what's happened is that since the early 2000s, I mean, there's both been a really big revival of Second World War cult, I suppose you could say, I mean, the sort of commemoration of the Second World War, and also a really strong push to present Russia as the heir to the Soviet Union's role in the defeat of the Nazis. Stalin already in his Toast to the Russian People in 1945 presented the Russians as the sort of lead nationality in the Soviet Union in defeating fascism. But I mean, this has now become a role for post-Soviet Russia, hence the sort of, you know, commemoration of, at an an assiduous level and repetitive level of key battles, Kursk, Stalingrad, and the blockade of Leningrad. I mean, the last one, of course, is civilian tragedy primarily. So that is something with which rulers of Russia have always been more uncomfortable because it's basically about, you know, it's not a a happy story of of defeat and people kind of, you know, coming with red red flags on tanks. It's about bodies being carried out. I mean, it's actually, of course, like Mariupol, we would say no. I mean, Mariupol on a smaller scale is a much smaller city apart from anything else. We're going to pause for a little piece of music now, Katrina, and uh, then we'll be back talking more about Ukraine and Russia. Cam's Politics on Cambridge 105 Radio. I'm Trevor Dan. I've got Katrina Kelly with me, who is Honorary Professor of Russian and Soviet Culture and Senior Research Fellow at Trinity College in Cambridge. What effect, Katrina, are the sanctions going to have amongst the people that you know who live in Russia? Are they facing empty shelves? Are they bothered? Do they just think, oh, this is life and it'll go on? It's complicated because, of course, there were self-imposed sanctions on EU produce after Crimea. So there's been a sort of sense of readjusting. So there are now quite well-established market relationships with suppliers of fruit and vegetables, for example. Particularly fruit is sort of largely not produced in Russia. It used to be produced before 1917, but that hasn't really come back. So a lot of things like melons, for example, or grapes are imported. So... I would say what's actually happened through those sanctions, I mean, just speaking of somebody who visits regularly and, and visits shops, is that choice has been reduced and you pay more for worse quality. But, I mean, it's not a kind of question of empty shelves or not being able to get things. So, you know, without wanting to sound too controversial, it's a bit like Brexit. I mean, you know, it's much the same, but you pay a bit more for it. Yes, and that's the... That's so it's, the not, it's not as bad as um, it was in the final years of the Soviet Union. I remember Nothing. going to Leningrad and, and you know, that that was rows of empty shelves and, uh, and and long queues. Precisely. No, that hasn't happened. What has happened is evidence that food prices have actually been rising 
very steeply in the sort of, you know, the second half of last year and the, the first months of this. So that's the first anxiety, because rising food prices is always something that's, that's worried Russian governments. I mean, that was true in the Soviet period. And actually, one of the reasons for shortages is they wanted to keep food prices low so people could afford to stockpile. And what's now happened is that there's really a full scale shortage of sugar. So that's the sort of basic thing. I mean, it tends to happen when political times are unsettled. People have kind of rushed to the shops and bought that. There's talk of imposing government anti-monopoly rules on the, you know, the five main producers of sugar, trying to kind of you know, keep prices down, keep supplies going. But again, that's you know, obviously something that, that doesn't look good because it's redolent of crisis situations in the past. But I think that, I mean, alongside that, what people are worried about is not being able to go abroad, for instance. And I don't think that the original intention of the sanctions was to you know, make people who support the anti-war movement feel uncomfortable about life. But that's been one result of it, because, of course, they feel trapped in the country. I mean, it's becoming increasingly difficult to get visas. The flights are crowded with people who are already immigrating, etc. And then there's the fact that if you have, you know, constant information that this is somebody else's fault so the idea is that this has been visited on Russia by the West so that's made some people who were anti-war not actually pro the war but actually also angry with the West so they you know kind of generally angry they're angry about the, the entire situation they understand why the sanctions have been imposed but they don't understand why they should personally suffer I mean I should say that this isn't something that is true necessarily the people that I know I think much more widespread is actually a sort of desire to block all of this out. I mean, there's just too much bad news coming all at once. I mean, there's what people who get their news from sources that are outside the sort of very monolithic message that's being propounded by state channels and state media generally, what they recognise as an absolutely horrendous humanitarian situation. And they see that Russia is, as the rest of the world does, to a large extent, to blame for this. And at the same time, there are no bright spots Otherwise, I mean, you know, prices are rising and people are kind of really worried about that. They're worried about being cut off from the rest of the world. They're worried about the kind of restriction on freedom of speech in a general sense. They're worried about the sort of transition in educational institutions, which now have to sort of propound a much more obviously patriotic message. And they see a sort of iron curtain situation coming back. So what do you think to the view that you do hear expounded in the West, that there is something in the Russian psyche that says... I want to be run by a strong man, whether it's the Tsar or Lenin or Stalin or Putin or whoever it is. I want to look up and see that, as it were, Big Brother is looking after me because I know that when there isn't that character, everything just falls apart. Whereas in the West of Europe, there's more of a sense of, well, no, we quite like a bit of this guy's in for a bit and then the other guy's in for a bit and they swap it around a bit and we kind of call that democracy. Is there anything in that kind of Russian psyche, do you think, or is that just a Western invention? I think there's partly a question of familiarity. So there is a sort of mould of leader and people's understanding of a, of a leader would, of course, now date back to the late Soviet period. I mean, people can't remember Stalin. I mean, more or less nobody any, any longer can because the people who are still alive would have been, um, you know, essentially teenagers at oldest uh, when he died. Or, or killed off. 
Well, yes, I mean, quite a lot of people <laughs> did survive, but on the whole, uh, we're talking about, well, they might remember him in the late 1940s, but certainly not kind of really much as a war leader. So the sort of, you know, the war myth, myth to a large extent survives because there aren't people around much who can now contradict it. So the war generation themselves tended to be much more generous in acknowledging the role of other allies. I mean, that was true in Britain as well. So that, I mean, for a long time, no matter how bad relations were, the Arctic convoy, you know, those elderly admirals and commanders and so on who'd, who'd actually been on the fleets and, and, and taken the, the fleet through to, to Murmansk and the people who'd, as it were, accompanied them from the Soviet ships, that they would, they would all meet together and you know, have regular meetings and celebrate victory. So I think there's a sort of sense that there is a type of leader. I mean, often it's somebody, you know, interestingly enough, in present context, of being actually quite physically bulky. Now, that obviously is something that Putin doesn't have, but, you know, he can manage to sort of project a, a powerful persona, which has got nothing to do with that physique. So I think there is a sort of sense that leaders should be, you know, for want of a better word, charismatic and a sense of, of trust in them or that, you know, you hope to have a, have a sense of trust in them. But it can actually be quite fragile because... I suppose the other thing I wanted to say about Putin's popularity as such is that that can actually waver. I mean, there is a sort of sense in which that's also quite fragile and that, you know, as prices go up, his popularity tends to go down. And there is a sort of sense that some sort of grandstanding is needed at that stage. It worked extremely well with Crimea. And I think the hope was that there would be something which is an easier victory and produced as much of a boost for sort of small effort and not much bloodshed this time around. And obviously, if that actually was the, the plan, then it's, it's misfired quite horribly. We'll have more with Professor Katrina Kelly after this from you two. Is it getting better? I'm not going to ask you to speculate about a potential end to the military conflict because that's not your thing. But can we ever imagine a world in which British people and Russian people are not suspicious of one another again and that all of that good stuff that was happening in terms of fraternal relations, can that come back? Or are Russians going to be now painted, do you think, for a for eternity as, you know, the enemy? It's an interesting question. I mean, I think the thing is that, I mean, what's depressing to me, I mean, vast numbers of things about the whole situation are de depressing, but one thing that's depressing is that the relations have got so much more trusting and close in, in my lifetime, and that certainly happened from the mid-1980s, or to be more accurate, from about 1987, 1988, when it just became much easier to visit and the relations were far less formal there was this kind of sense that the country was changing and that it was no longer 
dangerous or threatening or seen as subversive to have contact with foreigners. And it really hasn't been for until I suppose the last sort of seven or eight years that there's been a kind of retreat back to sort of more of a confrontational position. But I mean, you know, it's radically deteriorated over the last month. I just haven't seen anything like this since I think 1980. I mean, you know, the invasion of Afghanistan and actually in some ways there was a sense that, I mean, we didn't have it as much in our face, which is partly a product, I think, of the internet, that we have, you know, so much more information. I mean, there was a report that these bodies had been found in some of the sort of reclaimed territory, for instance, so you have that image with you. And, I mean, about Afghanistan, you know, information was coming in, and, and it was clear that there'd been more deaths than had been admitted. And on the other hand, the news blackout lasted quite effectively until the Glasnost era. So it was different in that respect. I think it certainly took probably about 10 years or something for there to be a generation that, you know, was visiting Russia for the first time and had no kind of real understanding of what the Soviet Union was. And I'd sort of noticed that with students that, I mean, in other words, that they sort of Russia as really pretty well anywhere else. And I mean, certainly one thing that we've heard an awful lot, those of us in Russian departments across the country, when you know you ask why somebody got interested in Russian, what they've historically said is, oh, because I want to hear something that's not what the British press says about it, because I think that's very one-sided. And I would sort of espouse that. The trouble is now that you're in a situation, I feel a bit like Topol and Fiddler on the Roof when he says there is no third hand. It is actually quite difficult to be sort of positive about Russia in its present mode. When will you go back again? I mean, I'm even more reluctant to talk about that than I am about the end of the military conflict, because, of course, it doesn't depend on me at all. But how safe would you feel, you know, if you got a call now from the university of somewhere saying, will you come over and talk to us, would you go? Well, I don't think they're going to... I don't think they are, but, you know, I'm trying Uh, to get a sense of the kind of human dimension of this. I mean, you know, I wouldn't be terrified. I mean, I, I think the, the biggest difficulty at the moment is a practical one, which is how on earth you kind of get there to begin with, because there are almost no commercial flights. And actually, the difficulty is it's a bit like traveling in the Soviet period when you couldn't buy a return ticket. So, I mean, I wouldn't want to be stuck for family and all kinds of other reasons in, in Russia for months on end without really knowing what was going to happen. I mean, I don't think I'd be seen as a threat. So I think the likelihood that I'd be, you know, kind of dragged off to Siberia or any of these sort of fates that people might imagine is, is vanishingly small. But I think it's more the sort of sense of the awkwardness of it, because, you know, there I would be a representative of what's seen as the invading force. I mean, you know, kind of counterintuitively enough, if you're kind of sitting on this side. And, you know, I really do believe that Russia attacked Ukraine without provocation. I mean, I think there was just really no excuse for it at all at the time when it was done. And some of the the reasoning behind it, such as that there was genocide going on in Donbass and it had been so for eight years. Well, you just ask yourself, well, if that was the case, why did Russia take eight years to do something about it? I mean, you know, it doesn't really make any sense as an excuse that. And of course, it doesn't make any sense to say that the Ukrainians are bombing themselves. I mean, aside from the circumstances of the conflict, there's also the way that it's being reported and the fact that a lot of people aren't getting an alternative view. I mean, it's manageable. You would just not talk about it. I mean, you know, I've got used to not talking about some aspects of Russian life um, in the last eight to ten years and just being very careful what I say, because people may agree with you about one thing and you don't about another but I think I would actually feel quite uncomfortable. Interesting. We're running out of time, Katrina, so I'm going to have to say goodbye and thank you again for giving up so much time to talk to us on the radio. We'll keep in touch because 
who knows, there might be another interview to be done in a few months or years' time about how negative and pessimistic we all were. And, hey, it all got solved. It's very kind of you to talk to us uh, all the way from Oxford. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you, and I'll drink to your loss. Thank you. Next month, we'll be back to normal on Cam's Politics, talking to all the local parties competing for your vote on May the 5th at the elections for Cambridge City Council and South Cam's District Council. So do join me for that and, of course, for all the other election programmes on 105. This has been a TDC production for Cambridge 105 Radio. I'm Trevor Dan and these are the killers. Cut the cord. Are we human?